Hey, everybody. We're talking to Adam Coffey today. What an amazing guy. He's a best-selling author, a speaker, CEO, has some incredible stories about leadership and growing companies. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Adam Coffey with us today. Thank you for being on the show today, Mr. Coffey. Dallas, it is good to be here. Hello to all your listeners. I'm ready to get it going. Let's do this. Let's do this. So that sounds like a man who has just come off of an empire building summit that you have had people from all over the world come in and you've been teaching them. You said you're teaching them how to go from zero to a billion. Tell us about what you've just been into and doing this past week. I got to tell you, it was it was actually the brainchild of JT Fox, who who has this global network. And if Adam Coffey wants to do a seminar, he might get four people show up. If if JT Fox wants to put on a seminar, you're going to get hundreds of people showing up. So we literally, we had 300 plus people from around the globe come into Dallas, Texas for a two-day event. It was a 250-page seminar workbook. We called it Empire Builder. And I had people coming in from Indonesia and from Australia. It blew me away so that, that people would spend 20 hours on an airplane to come hear me drone on for a couple of days. My, my wife was saying, hell, I listen to you drone on every day for free. And I don't know that I'd come from across the globe and pay you money. But what we did, we broke it down. Over my career, I've had the pleasure and privilege to build three different empires. And these were big companies and they started small, they got big. So I have a toolkit I've developed across 30 years of senior executive leadership, 10 years of GE, 21 years as a CEO. I built three companies for nine private equity sponsors, did 58 acquisitions. I have billions of dollars in successful exits. And so we broke it down on what's important, how to build a company going from zero to a million, which is where most people fail out. There are 31 million small businesses in America. Only 7% ever hit a million of revenue. And then from a million to 10 million, a feat that only about 4% of those 7% actually achieve. What changes in that business? You got to get it right small, get the unit level economics dialed in. And then it's about starting the scaling efforts, making some initial pivots, bringing on some ancillary revenue streams, perfecting the core. And then it's 10 million to 100 million. How do I then take it and build this thing out to its first exit point? And then the journey from a million to a billion, what does that look like? And I'll tell you, if you could envision the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain with all these levers on the machine <laughs> that he would use, and then it's kind of like you set your levers differently when you're just starting and you make adjustments at these different, these different points in your company's progression. And ultimately, it's, you know, we would kind of walk the walk for two days solid on how to go from zero to a billion. And a piece of that then, of course, was since we got to a billion, hell do we exit it and get <laughs> value? Right, right, exactly. That is so cool. If you want to check that out, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode, how you can stay in touch with Adam and know when his next session is going to be so you can be a part of that if you want to. So that. I mean, that sounds like such a cool event. Sounds oh, like then we created this cool thing that I didn't even know it when I walked on the stage on day one. It just got developed while we were. We, we started the, this version of Empire Builders. I'm now the chairman 
Hey. And this didn't happen until I walked in of 30 different companies who have joined to create, call it the ultimate high-level peer group, wow. representing billions of dollars collectively in portfolios and business businesses. And we collectively are the board. I've been elected the chairman of the board. And each of these companies brings their problems, their issues, and the members of the board help everybody. So you've got literally billionaires helping other people build their build their empires fun it was a fun concept and what's that what's that group called what's the peer group called right now it's called the chairman i'm the oh. chairman <laughs> and i'm now the chairman of 30 different companies you know that and, and again we didn't see this coming i'm friday when i'm leaving to the hotel this was not on my radar screen by sunday night i'm now the chairman of 30 companies who've got billions of dollars in in revenue and portfolios and collectively now we are the board for each other's companies. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Unbelievable. That is awesome. So you're hearing it here first. Think, move, thrive. You've heard about the chairman, the peer group, and now you get to hear from the chairman of the chairman. That's as good as it gets. So I want to talk, let's start too, because we've got very diverse group of listeners and we've got, we've got young leaders, we've got seasoned veterans, we've got business owners, we've got team leaders, we've got a lot of different people that's managing groups and organizations, and we like to help people grow and thrive. You do a lot of mentorship. You've spoken at colleges like UCLA, and you've done a lot of work with MBA students just to help them get a good start out the gate into their careers. What's some advice that you would give to people that are young people maybe coming in or young professionals? Maybe they've come out of college, they've been in the workforce a few years, what advice would you give to them in terms of how to maximize their career? And then we'll get into all the culture stuff and the business stuff where I can't wait. Sure. I'll tell you, I think collectively, so I've been speaking at top business schools around the world for the past 15 years and it was an active part of my life, even as a sitting CEO. And I probably have mentored around a thousand people. And these are what I'd call mid-career executives doing an executive MBA program, they represent the next generation of the world's business leaders. And to have an ability to give an, to make an impact on that group about how to think about culture and the importance of taking care of employees and that the concept that profit and culture are not mutually exclusive. Mm. In actuality, to enjoy generating the, the most profit that's possible it comes from the base of a very strong culture. But for most of these people that I'm mentoring, it really started and what kind of steered them to wanting to have a mentor or have a conversation was really about them facing, I would tell you in 90% of the cases, people came to me with a basic problem or concept. And it was, Adam, I'm faced with a crossroad in my life. Mm. Have a job opportunity. Should I take it? And that they come to me when they're at a crossroad. Yeah. I'm standing crossroad in life. I'm doing my executive MBA. I've been spinning my wheels and I've got this choice to make and I don't know how to make it. Mm. Can you help me? And of course, would think to myself, not out loud, but thinking to myself, I just met you. How the <laughs> hell can I tell you which road you should take? <laughs> so after a while, I developed a process where I could help these people. And I would answer a question with a question. In order to know whether to turn left or turn right at this crossroad, it really starts with, do we know where we're going? Do we understand the road we're about to take? And I'd run them through some exercises. So I'll tell them, get a piece of paper, write a date 10 years from now on the top of it. And I want you to describe your ideal life. Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? Are you married? Do you have kids? What's, how are you giving back to society? What do you want your life to look like in 10 years? Mm -hmm. And then the second you know, thing that I'd have them do is that let's write your own obituary. So let's talk about your, your life now. And what did you do to contribute? And who showed it? Did anybody show up at your funeral? And what I was doing, it wasn't about goal setting. It was getting people to define success. Mm. What does that look like so to you? Because the reality is some people want to change the world. Hey, I want to go to Africa. 
I want to be a doctor without borders. I want to cure disease. Someone else would be, hey, I want to be the next billionaire global businessman who or lady who, who just got this ultimate empire. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by helping society. Everybody's different. So I, I'm an ex-military guy. You give me a couple different compass or grid points, you know, I can chart a course. And that's what I'm having them do. I'm having them chart a course from where they're standing at to where they want to be in 10 years and then where they want to be at the end of their life. I can now shoot an azimuth. We can walk that journey. And when we come back, now we can answer that question. Now we know where we want to go. And if we know where we want to go, now let's use that lens and that compass to decide, should we turn left? Should we turn right on this path at this juncture in our career? And you'd be amazed when you know where you're going, how much faster it is that you actually get there. And then I would even tell a story and I would say, look, if I told you to go get in a car and drive, you probably wouldn't go more than five miles from where you're at right now today because you don't have a destination in mind. But if I told you when you're in Los Angeles, go get in the car and drive to New York, you got a plan. You got to find, I'm going to drive to here, stay in a hotel. I'm going to need food. I'm going to need gas. I could take one of three paths from west to east across the United States. I better have somebody get the mail. Someone's got to feed the dogs, the cats. And it's like, you'd be amazed. When you know where you're going, in this case to New York City, now you can plan all the way stops and all the details that are required to get you there. And when employees, and so I always tell young people coming out of high school, coming out of college, you need a plan for your life. You have to know where you're going in order to make sure that the journey you're on is going to get you there in the fastest amount of time with the least amount of detours and the least amount of time wasted mm. because we only have a finite amount of time on the planet and only a finite amount of time in our careers in which to get there. And if we spend 20 years going left and right and not really knowing where we're going, we're not going to get as far as someone who starts that journey that has a plan. So that's what I tell them. I mean, it's just amazing how fundamental that advice is and how you can't skip it. You can't, it's like advice that you can't just skip over because so many people will just skip that and they'll try to get the, I want to get the highest pay out, out the gate. If I come out of school, what's the highest job? Maybe that's the, maybe that's the right thing and maybe it's not. Maybe that's the worst decision that you could do based on just the basic fundamentals. And I love how you described it in terms of the journey, how it's, if I tell you just to drive, you're just going to go five miles. But if the more clarity that you get, the more clarity that you can insert. We talk about that in Move. The book Move is clarity begets clarity. If you say New York, all of a sudden now say, okay, I got to pack a bag. I got to let people know I'm gone. And as soon as you put that out there, and as soon as you paint that clear picture to the vision, then all of a sudden all these things start making more sense. And you just get more clarity because you set these boundaries in, in place. So now you know the zone that you can operate in and what's outside that zone. I love how you also pair that with the kind of the ultimate obituary. It's not just about the journey. It's about who you're being while you're journeying. And I, I love that because sometimes those can conflict and you got to have some clarity about that because you may have to make a decision on who you want to be. And part of that journey may include that. What's crazy about those things early. We can't think about them 30 years down the road. We got to think about What's the legacy? Absolutely. What's important to us? What's our moral compass look like? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing five books. That's the fifth one. It's already written, but it's not coming out till the end called Life Lessons from the Corner Office. And it's all mm. about navigating career and learning how to navigate career so that you can get to your ultimate destination sooner and enjoy it longer. Because how many people have you ever encountered in your life that just, you know, that I, I wish I could, I wish I would have. You know, and 20 years later, I'm still in the same cubicle mm. and I'm a dreamer, not a doer. Mm. And and then there's a feeling of I, I didn't hit my fullest potential because I was asleep at the switch for far too long. And yeah. So I, I, I think, think for young people, that, that that's the key. And we don't necessarily teach that. No, today. I think that's lost. And I think, too, what you're saying is, which is fantastic, is that your potential is not good enough to get you to where your destination you're. You may have had great classes, you may have great grades in school, you may have, but that's all very clear and it's packaged in the syllabus and given to you, execute that. And the day you walk out, 
is the date you get to choose that destination. Am I going to Seattle or am I going to New York? And right. if you start towards Seattle and then realize it's New York, the further you get down the road, it's a bigger shift. And so I think yeah. that Knowing that and having that clarity early on is fundamental. Right? And I tell people to review those two exercises often because mm -hmm. oftentimes our lives change or our objectives change. Mm -hmm. And so we revisit that exercise once a year is, is my path. Am I still going to New York City? Yes. You know, that's the end result. I love that. I love that. Now, you've had a tremendous career. You've led multiple companies. You started in the military. Tell about how your journey, each kind of stage, you break it up into different stages. Tell about how your journey kind of has influenced your path and like how that's created who you are, yeah. what you, how you see things today. When I meet people for the first time, I generally talk about four experiences. So for me, first is the military. The military taught a young kid discipline, teamwork, and leadership. I went in a smart ass. They smacked the, the ass part off really quick. And, and you know, I was a smart kid, but you know, it, it gave me a foundation. It gave me a good solid foundation upon which to build a career upon. And it was all about teamwork, leadership, and discipline. And I, I was a private in the United States Army. I went in the bottom. I was bubble gum on the bottom of your shoe. That's how <laughs> low I was. And to be honest, that informed a lot of my thinking about culture because I've been the guy in the trenches. I've been the, the smallest, lowest form of life and worked my way up the ladder from there. So that was first. Second was engineering. In the military, I worked on classified air defense, radar, and missile systems. And I always had a technical background as a person. Engineering as a career led me as a first career after the military. It brought me to you know a, a place of being a meticulous planner. And mm -hmm. engineers are very methodical. I can't do step 39 till I've done the first 38. And in many cases, I can't skip the first 38 or I'll have a suboptimal outcome. So engineering made me a meticulous planner. Being a pilot made me a meticulous planner. You don't go jump in an airplane, take off without knowing where you're going, you know, what the winds aloft are, you know, what the weather is, where you're at, in route, at the end, how much fuel I need, what are my alternates? And there's just so much that goes into it. So meticulous planning came out of that. I'm an anal retentive strategic planner. GE then. 10 years of the glory days, Jack Welsh, it's Camelot. I call it the Camelot yeah. era of GE. There is no tech. Tech doesn't exist yet. GE is the world's most admired company. It's the oldest Dow component, over 100 years old. Stock is splitting every two and a half years. So it, it, Jack is in the early days, people called him Neutron Jack because he was blowing it up. <laughs> the last 10 years was Camelot. It was the growth era where a hundred-year-old business was doubling its stock every two and a half years. And uh, it was a magical time. And I credit GE with teaching me how to run a business. Not this GE of today, the GE of yesteryear. Yeah. And then from there, it comes down to experience. 21 years as a CEO and nine different private equity sponsors along the way. A lot of exits. And the 37-year-old CEO definitely has learned a lot. And now the 58-year-old CEO, you make every mistake in the book you can make. Yeah. So experience is something that can never be understated. And so I think those are the four collective experiences that bring me to where I am today. What was the biggest thing when you were going from engineering to more of a executive at GE. I love how you refer to that as the Camelot at GE because those, those, you know, epic times for GE. What was your biggest aha moment or surprise? You said GE really was formative as it related to leading companies and culture for you. Something that you took away with that, one of your biggest surprises or aha moments when you got into that higher level at GE? First, let me just tell you that as an engineer, I was a really good engineer and I'm in my early twenties and I'm making six figures a year. And, but I'm, I'm bumping up against the ceiling of what an engineer can make as an engineer. And if I think about my own life's journey, I was chasing money title and I wanted to find financial security for a family I, I didn't have yet. And, you know, in the military, you know, when I, when I was leaving home for the first time, it was like, you know, what are my goals and objectives? I'm chasing title and money. I'm trying right. to find security. And so when I've had my own crossroads in the career, when I was a really good engineer faced with the prospects, putting away, call it the proverbial slide rule and toolkit and jumping over into this thing called management. Hmm. 
hmm. where I'm now going to be competing against Harvard MBAs and people who were born with silver spoons in their mouth. It's that was a scary time. Yeah. But I was hitting the glass ceiling on pay. And if I just stepped over to the side and got into management, all of a sudden my runway goes all the way to the corner office. Hmm. It's a hard ladder to climb, but the potential was so much bigger. And so, you know, I took that leap of faith. You know, I, I went to GE Crotonville. So GE Crotonville is, is GE's own college campus where they train the top 5% of GE people to be their next generation of business leaders. And it was back in the magical days when the business unit, the, the Jack Welsh's, the Bob Nardelli's, they were coming to teach and help educate GE's top young leaders into the next global leaders, GE in business. So it was a magical time there. And just to show you how far it's come, eventually they had a cadre of people. They've now sold it. But GE just recently announced the sale of Crotonville. I thought, oh boy, there's... That, that's a sad day when Crotonville is gone. So Camelot needed a castle. Crotonville was the castle. And so I got world-class leadership training. And you know what? I really was a, an arrogant, young, you know, up-and-coming guy. I, I remember times where, so here's, here's, here's one of these stories, right? So my business unit, worst to first, that was the goal. We pulled it off. And I'm walking into a board meeting with my leadership team. I've got a boom box on my shoulder. I'm wearing dark sunglasses. Pink Floyd song, The Money is blasted out. I got a cigar in my mouth. I'm walking in all my team behind me. We're doing like this, the shuffle of the seven dwarfs. The guys in the middle are like throwing up Monopoly money, demonstrating that we are the best business in GE. And the board, talk about a high level risk. It's a good thing we were number one, but not at the bottom of the yeah. pack. And that's why we did it, of course. But they were like falling out of their seats, laughing their asses off. Uh, and in that era, you worked hard, you played hard, but sure. when you were the best, you celebrated being the best. Yeah. That's, that is so cool. That is so cool. I can see it. It's a great visual picture. You coming in with your entourage throwing Monopoly money up in the air. That's well done. Well done. Well, it sounds like it just really was a formative time for you, especially being able to just soak up a lot of that information from Jack and from all these other great executives. So that's awesome. If you were to talk about, I would love to get into a little bit more conversation about culture with you because you've sat at the top of several different entities and you've got a different vantage point. You've seen it from private equity side. You've seen it from the CEO level. You've seen it all the way down through engineering. So you've seen it at multiple levels. Let's talk about it. What is some of the things that you see now, especially you've just gone through this Empire Summit, Empire Builder Summit, and what's some of the things that you see is really common mistakes that business leaders make or even team leaders make when trying to develop a strong, sustainable culture? So let's start with my philosophy after running businesses for decades is that culture and revenue are directly correlated. You know, in, in a business, a CEO can't manage revenue from the top down. Hmm. You control revenue by building culture from the ground up. So let's unpack that for just a second. I've run service companies in my career that's to sound sexist, but basically it's guys, trucks, broken stuff. Guys, <laughs> truck, building things, you know, blue collar workers, HVAC technicians and construction workers and service techs fixing things. That's in my world. And in service, you don't have a tangible product. I can't package a box of service and put it on a shelf, yeah. you know, for you to pull off as a consumer later or a customer and, and, you know, sprinkle it on a broken piece of equipment, water, and it magically starts working again. It doesn't work that way. In a business, when you can't store your product on a shelf, your product is actually by default people. Yes. And they perform a service. Yes. So. I don't focus on top line, much to the chagrin of boards. I focus on, do I have a strong culture? That's the base component. So instead of coming in, trying to force revenue or cost actions, let's start by looking at culture. What's the turnover rate in a company I'm coming into? Do we have a problem or an issue with the culture? If I fix it and build it right, I'm building the base foundational level. If I build a strong culture, I get an engaged workforce. Engaged workforce takes care of the customers I'm servicing. 
they give us more stuff or they buy more stuff and revenue just kind of rains from the sky. So someone who comes in at the top and starts measuring from the and stops leading, starts leading from the top down, they may or may not find success. But if you want sustainable success, if you want to bend the growth curve and make your company something special, you start at the bottom and you build up and it starts with culture. Mm. I think that's so fascinating, too, because I've had multiple private equity companies that I've had experience with. In fact, one of them I was sitting across, it was a funded startup. And I went and we were talking. It was the first few months out of the gate. And one of the guys sits down with me and we were waiting on a meeting to start. And he's like, how's things going? I said, I mean, things are going really great. We've hired some amazing people and you can just feel the culture's moving in the right direction. And we've got a lot of momentum. And he just looked at me and he said, I don't give a blank about whatever you just said. Where's the money? And I was just like, I just sat back. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's guys like it's that amazing. that give private equity a bad name, right? Yeah, I know. And so it's just, I think it's really cool that you, in, in as a part of that world, see that and value that. Because I think that's really important, especially if you do have a strong culture, having a partner that has your mindset is really important. Well, I think in today's world now, in the 21 years I was a CEO, we went from hundreds of PE firms to over 6,000. We went from hundreds wow. of billions in assets under management to over 5 trillion. So I've really seen the world of PE mature and grow up. Mm. And I would tell you, when you have 6,000 of anything in an industry, you're going to have good, bad, and indifferent. And I think more and more PE firms I would even hazard a guess to say majority of PE firms recognize that multiples are high, they're paying high prices, that they need to be an active partner with management in order to ensure success. And I think a lot of people, and especially in today's world, over the last few years, what we've been through, people get that culture matters yeah. and can't just pay it lip service and expect good results. Yeah. Can't get workers right now <laughs> in most industries and businesses. And if you've got a crappy culture, good luck filling open jobs. You got to start by building a strong culture. It not only leads to improved, enhanced economic performance, but it helps you attract and retain the best talent that's available in a pool for a given industry too. What's some of the drivers and when you, let's say you walked into a company and it had a high turnover rate or just had some dysfunction. What are the what are some of the things that you're looking for that you would immediately go and say these are some things that are important enough to change? We need. To well, I this. came into a company for the first time, and a company had a 42 percent turnover rate and employee turnover rate. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I also saw that they had underspending in sales and marketing, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. We don't have enough employees to take care of the customers we got, let alone enough employees to find new ones. Right. So we're not spending any money. And, and we have this self-defeating prophecy around half our workforces. All, all my HR team's doing is trying to get bodies and seats. Right. And you know, I mean, you can spot a toxic culture coming in re real quickly. So I try to do some thoughtful analysis around what is impacting culture in different areas. And it can be different from geography to geography. And I remember for that business, Pacific Northwest, we had heavy union competition, so our wage scales were just off. We weren't paying people enough, and the union was picking off the non-union employees. And in other places, Texas was a good example. In Texas, we didn't have paid sick days, and some states in the country require it and others don't. Along with your thinking, the company was thinking, it's not required here, therefore I'm not going to do it. Oh. Okay, you bucks, but now you got high turnover rate. Oh. I did simply paid sick time to employees in Texas and the turnover rate drops 50% in 12 months. So sometimes it's money, sometimes it's benefits, sometimes to a large degree, it's usually I've got poor leadership. I've yes. got to teach managers who are managing the product, which is our people, yes. how, to be an effective, how to be an effective leader. But I really start from it, from one goal and, and, and objective. My goal for employees is I want to build a company where employees can spend their entire career in one place. I want to become the preferred employer in the industry. I want them to bring their friends. I want them to bring their families. I want to be able to attract and retain the talent. And I do that by instilling a pride in the organization that, that they, they work for because I'm going to fix that culture. I'm going to be a transparent leader. And yes. to do that, usually I've got a four-legged stool. Okay. So my goal is I want you to stay for life. 
the four things I've got to do. First is pay a fair wage. In today's world, if I don't pay a fair wage, I'm going to lose talent. Rather than recruit and retrain, I'd rather keep the people I've got. So let's start yes. by, let's pay a fair wage. People don't usually leave jobs because of wages, but what happens is they hate their boss. Yes. Their boss pisses them off. And so they're like, I got to get out of here. Then wage becomes a litmus test. If I make X, I need X plus one to justify the move leaving. But I wasn't looking until I had this conflict or this hatred for the boss or the person that I'm working for. So I have to pay a fair wage or lose talent. I want to provide excellent benefits. I want to have a strong retirement plan. But the most important leg of the stool is to create opportunity for personal growth. Mm. And so I need the person who's driving the truck, who wants to be driving the truck 30 years from now. God bless them. They become the journeymen that teach the next generation how to do whatever the job is or provide yes. the service that we're providing. But at the same time, I need the young kid who's in the truck, who wants to become the service manager, who wants to become the general manager, regional manager, vice president, wants to be a CEO someday. That gets me. Yes. And in this country, you can accomplish that. And so once upon a time, I was the guy in the truck. And now I'm the CEO and I've held every job you can hold in a service company on an org chart. And so I, I have to create that path. Some people aren't looking for it. Others are. But if I want them to stay, which is my goal, then pay a fair wage, give good benefits, have a strong retirement plan. And growth gives them the opportunity for advancement. A lot of small companies, maybe they've got one managerial position and the founder's name is Smith. And the son or daughter's name is Smith. <laughs> They're 33 and I'm 32. And I'm never going to have that leadership position. And so right. I don't leave because I don't like the family or the pay I'm getting, but I need opportunity. And so I leave looking to find it. So I find that when I have a strong culture, I create a growth company and the growth itself creates the opportunities that provide for the growth paths. I love how you structure that from, it's just, Starting again back with the fundamentals, a company like that that you walk in and has a 40% plus turnover, look at that and they, they could even have one of our top five core values is caring for the employees. And then you see in the back office, they're not paying for time off. So it's our sick days. And so it's, there's so many things like that where you want to bring it into an alignment. Everything has to come together. And a lot of what you're talking about is saying, look, we want to create this environment that people want to be at and people want to work in. So what are the things that are outside that purview? What are the things that are falling outside that? And it's just real and simple. By the way, it's, I'm not going to create an environment that coddles employees. They need to work hard. You need to produce. I'm going to hold them accountable. Yes. So leadership attitude matters. And I'm investing in technology to drive productivity. I'm a transparent leader. I think in today's world, it's really important that you be a transparent leader. So I come in, I look around, I ride in the trucks, I talk to people. And I put together a plan and I articulate the vision to all. Look, mm. we're going to build a billion dollar business. And I explain the difference between publicly held companies where stock is traded all day long, every day, and private equity backed companies where capital comes and goes about every five years. And what the differences are, I try to deconstruct, call it the mysteries of business so that I don't have to be hiding things in a closet and then spring them on people. Hey, I just sold the company today. Well, in my world, people are going to know that I'm going to sell that company the day I walk into it. Mm. And I'm going to sell it every five years and bring in different shareholders. And they're my tool for growth. Mm. And what they need is performance and return. And we're on a journey to build a billion dollar public company empire where we can all be owners and enjoy the fruits of our labors. And it's the gospel according to Adam as it relates to business and leadership. And so I'm constantly educating. I'm transparent. But during COVID, I would hold a town hall with 3,000 employees. I'd get more than 1,000 on a call at any given time who just want to tune in. But they had no idea what the hell EBITDA is, but they know how much we have, right? <laughs> and they know when the next shareholder is going to come or go. And yeah. I'm investing in them. Yes. And the growth allows continued investment in them. And yes. so- you know, it, you know, transparency is a piece of this. I, I love how you do that. And it's transparent regardless. I love how you said, look, I got people tuning in the call that don't even know what EBITDA is, but they are on the call. And that it's almost more important for those people that they're 
invited to be on the call than it is that they even understand all the information on the call, right? Because it's just the idea of transparency, the idea that we're in this together and you bringing them on the inside has as much impact as them actually knowing the definition of EBITDA. So I think that's fantastic. You talked a little bit about a change in leadership in some toxic areas. I'd love to know there's, there is a difference between being a manager and being a leader. And a lot of times we see in cultures that maybe are stagnant, we've gotten into the point where we're in a rut. We may have either managers, either leaders acting as managers or just lack of leadership and just managers. So talk a little bit about your the idea of what, how you see managers and leadership and the difference between doing those. Two yeah, things. sure. So managers handle the affairs of an organization. M managers handle things. Leaders inspire people mm. to and th that's the basic fundamental difference. But where it usually starts to go wrong in a company, you think about my typical companies, it's, it's providing a product or a service. And so who becomes a service manager? Probably the best service technician in the truck after some time period gets tapped to be the first, to be his first management position or hers is going to be as a service manager. Okay. They're a great technician. Who the hell taught them how to be a good leader, right? <laughs> All of my organization... I would have requirements. Look, my product is people. Culture is everything. If you're going to take that first promotion to a leadership position, I'm going to require you to attend leadership training. And if I don't have my own GE Crotonville, which I don't, I can leverage Dale Carnegie or some other organization that for a relatively low price, so it might be $1,000, 1500 couple grand, I can send a first-time supervisor or leader to a school that lasts weeks and they're going a couple of nights a week for eight weeks or whatever it is. And I'm going to teach them how to be a leader of people because being good at a job doesn't prepare you to lead people. So I think it starts going south in an organization when we fail as an organization to prepare people for leadership roles. And the most critical role as a leader is the first, because the vast majority of our employees report to the first level of yes. leadership. Oh, yes. Right? Absolutely. Okay. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one -on -one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful, we created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one -on -one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. Let's get it right there. Let's have a program there. And if I make the proper investments there, I have a much higher probability of preventing, just call it the classic mistakes first-time leaders make. And it's so easy to, because there's so much transition from that like high-level technician to that first-level leader, whether it's a project manager or whatever it is that's managing people, that's team leader, there's a lot of people that's either moving up, moving out, but they're moving into those positions a lot. It's a very broad base of your first-level leaders. And there is a tremendous gap in training from that zero to one. I mean, it's just that, that it's like almost yeah. once you get up higher in the organization, it's more, there's more available, but there's so many companies and so I guess if you're listening to the last 10% and you're a young leader, if you've just been promoted in this position, you're leading an organization team. I love what Adam's advice is. Take his advice. If the company's not investing in your leadership ability, go get it personally because you're going to need it. And it's different than being a technical expert, a manager, an SME. Those are great tools that make you very powerful at your production or your job, your technical, your craft. 
But when you're going to lead people, it's a different set of skills. And I think that his point to that is so powerful, so important. And it's what allows you to continue to progress and not do the Peter principle where you just got promoted to your position of incompetence and you're stuck there right above this team that you don't enjoy leading. Dallas, I can tell you, the vast majority, overwhelming majority, if I had to put a percent on it, I'd probably say 90% of companies in, in, in the country, in the world, don't provide that first level of leadership. So yes. here's some statistics for you. There are 31 million small businesses in America, and they represent 99.9% of all businesses in America, and they employ 50% of the workforce. Now, the government defines small businesses under 500 employees. And, and in those statistics, then, of those 31 million companies, only 7% have a million in revenue. So we're talking about a lot of little companies. And it's, there's 0.1% of the companies that are bigger than 500 employees in the country. Those might have first-level leadership training. But even there, it's, not, it's hit or miss as to whether they do or not. But the vast majority of small businesses in America, they think they can't afford to have a low level, some kind of training for low level leaders. And so they forego the expense. And what winds up happening is they probably pay more in lost employees and employee turnover and customer dissatisfaction than if they had just spent a little bit of time, effort, and money on educating first level leaders. I agree. The opportunity cost is so great. That is so true. It You just don't, you've got to calculate the opportunity cost of losing customers or losing your employees if you have a bad leader. And, and I like your point. I like your point about if your company's not providing it, go get it yourself. It, you don't even have to spend a whole lot of money. I think about LinkedIn and I think about some of the educational opportunities and the videos and the courses that you can take just online. And I think there's a small fee that's charged monthly, but it's like in today's world of digital information and chat GPT and yeah, all this other right. crap, it's like, boy, if you want to learn about leadership, you, all you, what it takes is effort, Yes, that, but you're investing in yourself. So it's not that your company requires it. You want to be an effective first-time leader so you can get the next promotion and you can avoid the pitfalls of leadership that are predictable, but you might not be seeing because you haven't been there before. So investing in yourself is the best investment you'll ever make. I love that. Let's talk a little bit. And I would say, too, just to, to, to piggyback on what you just said, it's getting that information is fantastic. And you have to start with some basis of knowledge. But I would say to your point, it's about action and about actionable leadership. And sometimes we can gather the information and say we can take it in, but we don't know how to connect the dots and apply it. So if you're leading a team, if you're leading an organization, if you own the business and you're going through this, I encourage you to go out and find either a mentor or a coach or someone that can help navigate how you implement some of this. How do you connect the dots between this value or this information that you've just pulled in and how you actually apply it to your team, to your situation, to your to the people that you're managing and you're leading at that time? So I think that's fantastic. I want to jump in because you literally have written the book on on exiting your bestseller on Amazon, you've, taught, you've written the book on exiting and how you do that effectively and work with private equity. We have business owners that listen to the last 10%. And so I want to spend just a, a few minutes talking to specifically to business owners about how they can prepare, what mistakes you tend to see business owners make, and then how they can exit well, or at least begin that process. Oh boy, we could be here for hours. This will be fun. The let me start with a couple of the biggest mistakes that I see business owners making. The first is assuming that because you're an expert at building a business and building your business and you know your business inside out, somehow they think that expertise will transcend and make them an expert when it's time to sell their business. And like anything in life, for most entrepreneurs who've built a business and put 20, 30 years into it, it's your first exit. Yes. It's your last exit. It's your life's work. And you think you're an expert and you have an arrogance of success. It's not intentional, but it happens and I see it every day. You assume because you are an expert, you built a business that you're an expert at exiting. You don't know anything about exits. I bought 58 companies. I can tell you that I could sniff out an expert from a novice in about three minutes of casual conversation. And if you're a novice, I'm a good guy, but 
there are a lot of sharks out there in this world who will absolutely take advantage of the fact that you are a novice at selling a business. So first, first golden rule, if you're thinking about an exit, is recognizing that you're going to need help. You're going to need yes. a team of people around you doing different types of activities to help maximize the potential of your business. So that's the first mistake that I see predominantly. Second biggest mistake I see them make is when they are actually exiting is they're chasing highest priced only and they're not thinking about the future and what the potential is of the business and what kind of exit gets them to the promised land. There's a lot of different kinds of buyers. There's strategic buyers, financial buyers, strategic buyers who turn the lights off and keep the lights on private equity, do I want to, I could be a rollover investor in a private equity-backed company. I could get a second bite of the apple, potentially a third. My personal record selling the same company five times and getting multiple paydays. It's the world's most sophisticated asset class. And a lot of people, a lot of business owners, a mistake they make is thinking, look, if I sell, I want to take all my chips off the table. There's no way anybody's going to, I'm not going to be a minority shareholder in my company. That's a bunch of crap. I can't make any money other than unless I've got control. I mean, that's just an arrogantly wrong thinking that you're God's gift and the only person who can make money because the asset class known as private equity on average beats the S&P 500 by a two to one basis. And they didn't go from a few hundred firms when I started my CEO career to 6,000 by sucking. These are the world's most sophisticated investors. And if you can ride their coattails using a rollover investment, then it's a problem when you sell a business. You get a pile of money, you sign a non-compete, so you can't go back to doing what you just did. So the first thing you got to do is figure out what the hell is next. Right. I got a pile of money and I'm now a novice who doesn't know anything about anything. who has got to go back and start a new business or invest and I'm out of my comfort zone. Why leave something you already know, unless it's just time for you to retire? Potentially, you take a first bite of the apple, stay running the business and built, but now you're using other people's money to grow it and grow it faster because you don't have the same kind of limitations you did when you were a sole owner of the business. So many different paths that you could take, so many better outcomes. Than, and so if you take those two experiences, those two observations of mine in buying companies. Those are the two biggest mistakes that I see entrepreneurs make. That's amazing. Great advice. I love it. And you just went through so much so fast. I got to pull back and just because I know people's heads just went, what? When you said you sold the same, your record is selling the same business five times. T what in the world? Tell us how you did that. What was that like? And tell us that process because I'm sure people are like, how does that even, I didn't even know that was possible. So most people, again, think about business as a one-and-done event. My exit's going to be a one-and-done event someday. I wrote an article for Forbes not too long ago, and I coined the rule of 130. And here's another. Here's the third biggest mistake entrepreneurs make. is They assume that nothing bad can ever happen to their business and that the value of that business is at a base level forever. Planes fly into buildings. Wars start. Pandemics happen. Imagine that you owned a chain of movie theaters in January of 2020. Wow. What happened Gosh. to your business in March? <laughs> you were out of business by summer or you were taking P-loans trying to hang on and survive. Bad things do happen. And so I coined the rule of 130, which is you take your age, you add to it the percent of your net worth that is tied up in this illiquid thing known as your business. And if it equals more than 130, chances are it's time for you to think about diversification. And that doesn't necessarily mean a full exit. So I see guys all the time or business owners, ladies who are in their 40s, early 50s, and they're like, I'm not ready to retire. I got lots of game left, but I am nervous. I'm nervous about the general broader economic environment that I'm seeing out there. And there's so much happening and, and a lot of it's negative and I get concerned about my financial future. And so I start to make mistakes. I start to get ultra conservative as a business owner and I'm not taking advantage of opportunities that I have because I'm afraid that my nest egg is going to go away. And so when you get into these positions, it's time to potentially think about bringing on a partner. And when you do, you can accelerate your growth trajectory with the access to unlimited 
capital that that can be brought to the table by a, a private equity firm and the debt relationships that, that they have. And by nature of a private equity fund, and you learn all this in my first book, which is the private equity playbook, which educates everyone on what private equity is. Hey, I just had a room of 300 people. I gave them a basic 10 question quiz on private equity. For the first time ever, I had one person score a 10 out of 10. And she told me she had just read my book the night before. That was good. But the vast majority of people in that room flunked. I'm sure. And these are people who potentially even owned a billion dollar business and they flunked. The world does not understand private equity or how it works. You need to get educated as a business owner because they're buying more than 50% of all companies on the planet right now. They're the reason multiples are high and you need to understand how that vehicle works. So the nature of a private equity fund is it exists for 10 years. It generally buys company in the early years of the fund. It improves them in the middle years. It sells them in the back half. Typical whole periods, five years. So I know if I'm a business owner and I sell to private equity, first of all, they bring a checkbook, not the leadership team. So I'm going to keep going. They want me to go. They want me to roll over. They want to align interests. I also know they're going to exit. I know they're going to exit in five years, which gives me the economic event that's going to give me a second bite of the apple. So if the average private equity firm is seeking a three times multiple of invested capital or a three times return, if I'm a founder and I sell the business, all I have to do is roll over 34 cents on the dollar and my second bite of the apple is going to be bigger than my first and my third bite will be bigger than the second and my fourth bite will be bigger than the third. And in my case, my average career multiple of invested capital is a five times return on investment. So if I roll over 21%, I'm going to wow. get a bigger payday the second time than I did the first time. And what you want to do is learn about this economic behemoth, who, by the way, if they were a separate country, would have the third largest GDP on the planet. You're talking about a $5 trillion animal that buys 50% of the companies in the world. If you learn how it works, you can feed it what it needs and take from it what you want, which is generational wealth. And you do that by engineering exits for them to get their money out. Because this is an illiquid private company investment, I know that what they buy, they have to sell in order to return the money to their shareholders. So while the average PE hold period is five years, I try to engineer a three-year exit. And if I can do a three-year exit, then in a 21-year period, I got a lot more exits for myself, right? Yeah, I see where this is going. So yes. if I learn about PE and I can build a company that meets their needs, they're not, when you think about a 10 year lifespan, the average hold period being five years, usually the three year exit is a good exit. It's a company that's growing really fast and yes. they're measured by IR, which is a percent of return and it has a time dependency. So if I get a quick three bagger, four bagger, and I can do that in three years. It's like a 50 plus percent IR. Raise your IRR. That's and So that helps me raise my next fund, which I don't wait 10 years to do. I'm raising it early in the, I'm deploying money from one fund. A couple of years later, I'm raising my next fund. I can point to that fund and say, looky, looky, my early exits are at a 50 plus percent IR. Give me a bunch of money. The dogs with fleas are the ones that go seven to 10 years. And those are the ones I need more time to try to fix them. They're going to be a low IR and they're usually sold towards the end of a fun life when I've already raised three more funds in the 10 years that, sure. th that those dogs with fleas were being deloused. So at the end of the day, it's you got to learn as an entrepreneur how this thing works. And when you understand what its needs are, you can feed it. And as you're feeding it, it goes away. New one comes in. I get another payday. Put more money off of the shelf. I'm diversifying my asset base. And yet I'm still running the same company and I can keep on going. And so that's the mechanics behind it. That's incredible. That's incredible advice. And I, I know that the listeners, if you're a business owner and you're even remotely close or thinking about an exit, definitely buy Adam's book. Buy both. Buy the one on private equity and the exit because you yeah, can the animal. Put it to you this way, Dallas. If they go into Starbucks and they buy a scone and a grande soy vanilla latte... For less than that price, they can buy both of my books on the Kindle version oh, if they man. want. That's... And they will learn everything they need to know in about eight hours reading both in order to maximize their potential and build an empire. And there's a lot more, there's a, a lot more to be gained 
from your books than a latte and a scone. <laughs> Sometimes we need a latte and scone, but I, I just, you know, let me just talk about coaching for a minute too. I, I left the CEO seat because I wanted to help multiple companies at a time. I wasn't enjoying running one company anymore, but I loved teaching and I wasn't making any money teaching, but I was making a lot of money as a CEO and I wanted to come up with a model where I could flip these things around and sure. I wanted to be helpful to other business leaders and owners. And so I started my own consulting business and I thought about to work with me on an entry level, it, it costs less than the cost of hiring an entry level employee. And so whatever the entry level work is in your business, Walmart just raised their starting wage to 15 bucks an hour. To work with an expert coach who's built billion dollar businesses you can do it for less than the annual cost of a new employee. That's and amazing. yeah, I'm not giving you 2,000 hours at 15 bucks an hour, I promise. <laughs> but I'm going to give you more value in, in the time you spend with me for 30 grand a year than you are ever going to do in that entry-level employee. And I have some people who, are, who pay me hundreds of thousands of dollars to have me consult in their businesses. Putting me aside, you raised the point. Business leaders need to recognize that they can up their game by... Working with people who can help them maximize the potential, right. whether it's a coach, a mentor, it's a practitioner like me who's been there and done it, or it's someone who does it from an academic perspective and they've got a model. It's like business owners and leaders just need to be open to the fact that they don't know everything and yes. they can accelerate their learning and maximize the potential of their business by working with others, whether it's a peer group or it's a, a coach or mentor that it can help them amp up their game. I love that. And I think that's so important. And I think that you engage people at so many different levels. And I think that's awesome. I think that you having the books out there, you're obviously a, an absolute world-class expert in private equity, world-class expert in transitioning and retirement and how that process all works and everything. And then to be able to give that back and also business, running businesses as a CEO and have that high level executive view from that seat in the ballpark. I think that's just awesome because people you know, can that, engage with you in different ways. That seminar I just finished, Empire Builders, people paid a thousand bucks, 300 of them to come in and, and sit there. And I gave them 30 years worth of executive knowledge and a 250 page workbook that they walk out with. That's essentially the toolkit to build a billion-dollar business. I wish to hell somebody had given me <laughs> when I was 20 years old or 30 years old. Yeah, uh, that's I, a lot less than an MBA, but I yeah, know yeah. just based on our show today, there what that was a heavy workbook they left with. I can assure you of that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because of the price, it was a PDF. But yeah. at, at the end of the day, though, a lot of people said, Jesus, I spent 150 grand on an MBA, and I learned more here in two days that's sure. actionable than I did in 18 months at this top business yeah. school. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, it's the... School of Hard Knocks MBA. Well, and I think that's what you just said is exactly right. There's knowledge is great, but knowledge is not actionable. You have to get to an actionable place. You have to know how to apply that knowledge. And that's what experience gives. That's what experience does. And that's why you can have people fly in from all over the world, sit down and be so grateful to get that information because it's not just pie in the sky theory. This is an, this is, these are actionable things that they can do to help and grow their business. And I love how you go zero to a billion. That's just, that's just, it's just awesome because it's so, oh my gosh, that's, how, is that even possible? But you're laying it out. And I, I think there's so many things that we've talked about today that can help business leaders, can help team leaders, can help business owners. One last thing I'll talk about private equity. If you were to advise, because you made some bold statements about the market of private equity, the industry and how it's grown over the last few years. I've experienced that and seen that in myself and, and other businesses. And so if a business owner was thinking about transitioning, they go and read your book, how would they go about, how would you advise them going? Because this went from a several hundred to 6,000 different PE firms. How would you advise them in, in, in general about picking a partner that's right for them? That's right. So, and again, I'm not trying to hawk books because I donate all my royalties to charity. Let mm. me just start with that. But on the exit strategy playbook, I really lay it out step by step when you're a business owner, how to think about an exit. And it starts, first of all, before you ever head down that path, about helping you to define what your goals and objectives are that you're trying to accomplish. As an example, let's say you're in your 50s and you don't want to retire and you want a second bite of the apple then you're looking for either a financial buyer because they'll give you the opportunity to stay, or you're looking for a strategic buyer 
potentially backed by private equity, which will still give you the same same action if you're a small company, but you want one that keeps the lights on. And if you're going to sell to a strategic who's then going to ask you to leave, you you didn't accomplish your goals and objectives. So it starts by trying to understand what your own personal goals and objectives are in selling the business, aligning yourself to the universe of buyers that are going to allow you to achieve those goals. From there, I help you build a team of advisors in this book. And who are the four people you need to help you down this road to exit? It's the largest asset you have in your life. It probably is the largest transaction of your life to date. I want your next one to be bigger. But for right now today, this is the biggest transaction of your life. You're a novice at selling. I teach you who the four people are you need on your team and how to find them and what role it is that they play in helping you. And then I walk through what a typical lower middle market type PE process would look like from cradle to grave. Maybe they hired an investment banker because they were a little bit bigger and they were able to and run a traditional process. Maybe they had to hire a broker dealer or a business broker to help represent their business. Their business was a little bit smaller, wasn't big enough for an investment bank. And so I walk them through how to decide what your goals and objectives are, how to build the team of people around you that will level the playing field between you, the novice seller, and the world's most sophisticated buyer. And then as a part of that journey, what the process looks like, and then finally, how to make that decision. So there's a lot that goes into it from a soundbite perspective, but it starts by, just like in the beginning where we started this podcast, comes down to filling out that form 10 years from now, what are you trying to accomplish? You really got to put some forethought into selling a business before you start down that road. Hmm. Boy, there's preparation work that needs to happen. I see it too often where entrepreneurs wake up and they say, today's the day I'm going to sell my business. I'm going to chase the highest damn dollar I can find. <laughs> and uh, crap, who buys it? <laughs> Taking all my marbles and I'm going home, ready, go. And they wind up, hit or, first of all, they don't know what they don't know. That's so I right. guarantee you they maximize their outcome. But they don't know what they don't know. So they didn't know that they just left $50 million on the table uh. by not planning. But think of it this way. Imagine you own a business in California, Nevada, as an example. California has a 13.6% capital gains tax. You own this business, you live in LA, and your business is also in Nevada. If I sell it in California, if I don't have my tax and trust structure set up properly of where the windfall is going to come into, being I'm going to give 13.6% of all this to, what did my brother call him the other day? Instead of Gavin Newsom, it was gruesome. And your money is going to get just peed away in the general state budget really quick. But if I had a couple of years in advance, picked up stakes, checked 17 different boxes, how do I know 17? Because I've done this and I left and I set up shop in Nevada and, and then sold my business, I pay 0%. Unbelievable. So there's tax planning. I need help from accountants because my first thing I'm going to get asked for is three years worth of clean and potentially reviewed or audited financials, depending on how big I am. And right now I got the boathouse in there. I got Uncle Jimmy who's been dead for three years <laughs> on payroll. My wife hasn't worked a day in the business in 20 years, but I'm paying her 200 grand a year. When you're a business owner, you're programmed to not pay taxes. Mm-hmm. When you're a business seller, you got to normalize all your financials because it's going to hurt you in a sale process if all that stuff is clouded. If you hand over a QuickBooks file, you didn't work with a, a transaction advisory services team. You didn't do a sell side Q of E. You're listening to me and you're saying, I don't even know what the hell a Q of E is. So there's a process. There's things that you need to do to prepare for sale. And if you do these, I guarantee you, you're going to find maximum outcome from this asset that you spent a whole life building. You spent so much time building and caring for it. I can't believe how little effort people put into actually maximizing the potential of an exit. It. What you just said, I mean, it's unbelievable. And if you're listening to the show, I know we've got some listeners. If you're listening to the show, bare minimum, you should be buying at least the exit strategy playbook at bare minimum. Because what he's just covered is phenomenal and worth millions of dollars. In just what he just said alone, if you love the book, or if it, even if you just say, I want to circumvent that, go to one of his Empire Builder seminars. It's a thousand bucks. Go to him on that. Or unbelievable that you could have access to Adam for such a low rate in his advisory and consulting practice. You're, you're, you have the ability to talk to the chairman of the chairmen. So this is uh, this is big time. 
So yeah, would, we got to work on that branding. <laughs> I'm the chairman. You don't know yet what the thing the is, thing, but yeah. I already had a ton of people sign it up so to be good. part of the thing. So, so we're excited yeah. to hear more about it. Maybe in a year we can have you back on. You can tell us all about the new that new venture and what you're into then and everything. But I want to make sure where can people find you? We're gonna we're gonna post we're gonna post in the show notes. We're gonna post all the links to your books and Amazon. You're an Amazon bestseller, easy to find there. Where would you like to engage people if they want to get to you more about talking about more advice and things to how you can help their business? Yeah, so that's two two primary ways. Go to LinkedIn for, I'm Adam Coffey, C-O-F-E-Y. You'll find me and I love to connect and talk to people via LinkedIn. I also have a lot of content there that you can plug into and always know what's going on. And then I have a website, it's Adam E. Coffey, C-O-F-E-Y dot com. You can come find me there as as well. And happy to engage with, that's why I did this. I quit being the CEO. I was bored. I wanted to help multiple companies at a time. And to help multiple companies at a time, I got to find you and you have to find me. <laughs> so right. I try to get as easy as possible to in, engage. But those are the two primary places. Adam, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. You are a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for sharing that with us today. It, we could just, I could just talk to you for another three hours. This is, there's so many things that I would love to talk to you about, but we're going to have to save that for another episode. But thank you again. We'll be putting you into one last thing. And this is something you may, you, we always ask a guest at the end of the show, and it can be someone that you know personally. It can be someone that you would like to hear. But if there's anyone that comes to mind that you would like to hear on the last 10%, who would that person be as someone that you would like to hear? And it may be somebody you know or don't. Who would you like to hear on the last 10%? I know some other entrepreneurs who are on the journey right now. There's a young guy out there named Robert Brinzer who worked at GE, worked for me at CoolSys. He now owns a, an electrician company up in, in Northern California. He's a, an a, a, Annapolis grad. A former Navy SEAL officer wow. and led SEAL teams during the Gulf Wars or during the War on Terror. And he now runs a business called Trident Electric. He's another great guy that could tell some great stories about his experience building a business. Fantastic. Adam, thank you for being on The Last 10%. We look forward to having you on another show sometime. And, and we just appreciate you today. Thank you, Dallas. Thank you to everybody out there who's listening. Build your business. Build an empire. I want to see you at one of my upcoming events. God bless and be good out there. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.